Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? It's good to see you as we gather today. We have just begun a season called Lent. This is the historic season within the church from what is historically known as Ash Wednesday, that was this past week, all the way up through Easter. And it covers the seven weeks between that moment and when we celebrate the coming of Christ into Jerusalem, His death on the cross on Good Friday, and His resurrection on Easter Sunday. And I'm so excited that we're diving into a new teaching starting today called The Seven Sayings from the Cross. So if you will, grab your Bible. We're going to look at the first saying today in just a minute. Go to Luke chapter 23. We'll be there in just a moment. I want to start with a question. Here's the question. Get ready. Here we go. The question is this. How do you begin a conversation? Have you ever thought about it? Truth is, many of us start conversations and we get into it and go, oh no, I don't know where this is going. Have you ever been sort of on a path with your conversation and then halfway through the beginning you go, this is not where I was hoping to take things. So for instance, you're at a job interview. You only get one shot at making a good first impression. What do you say to ensure that that first interview ends up with a paycheck in the near future? How do you begin the conversation? Or, or you're a young man and you see a beautiful young lady across the room. And as every man has ever wondered, what do you say? How does the guy begin? I had a friend after first service come up to me and say, Oh man, Josh, the best thing to begin a conversation, two words, giant polar bear. I said, excuse me? He goes, it's perfect. You say giant polar bear because she'll say what? And then you get to say, he just broke the ice. That was my response as well. <clears throat> Thank you. Now, if you're wondering what is the best line, gentlemen, write this down. If you are curious, young men, what is the best line to open with, with a young lady that you are interested in? There's a group that actually did a legitimate study on this. Can you believe it? Someone actually took time and money to figure this out. And after a series of studies, research, and everything else, they figured out the single greatest Best starting line for a young man to a young lady. You want to know what it is? Hi. Your tax dollars at work. So how do you begin a conversation? Maybe the better question for where we are this morning is not how do you begin a conversation, but how do you begin a conversation with God? If you were able to sit down this morning across the table from the creator of all things... And, and, and look him in the eye or, or just, just gaze upon him. What would be the first thing you want him to know? What is the first thing you'd want him to understand? What question would you ask? What, what issue would you present? What would be the first thing that you say to God? Jesus is on the cross and the question is, he now has opportunity to talk to God. What is the first thing do you think that Jesus is going to say to God? Would it surprise you to know that the first thing Jesus says to his daddy is forgive them. Forgive them. This is what it says in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 33. 
when they came to the place called the skull. Some of your translations may say Golgotha. Golgotha simply means the place of the skull. There's a hill that used to be outside the city of Jerusalem, and it looked like, it was shaped like a skull, so they called it Golgotha. Now, since then, the city of Jerusalem has expanded, and it's now inside the walls. In fact, if you come with me to the Holy Land this fall, you will get to see that place. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him, Jesus, there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Let's pray together. Father, in these moments that follow, let the conversation begin between you and us. Let us hear from you exactly what you want us to hear. That your first word to each man, woman, and child is forgiveness. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all those who agree said, Amen, Amen. Seven, seven is the number of words, the number of conversations Jesus has on the cross. Seven is symbolic, and it is symbolic and significant. In the Hebrew mind, if you were a Jewish person... And you saw the number seven, or you saw seven things, you would quickly understand something else is going on here. Seven represents to the Hebrew completion, perfection. You have seven days to make a complete week. Seven, perfection, completion. Seven represents not just perfection, but completion, all that there is. So you have the four corners of the earth and the three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Four, three, seven, all there is, and the creator who created it, seven, is the number of completion and perfection. It is all that needs to be shown or said. So when Jesus begins to speak, and when he finishes and takes his last breath on the cross, the seven things he says are the seven things we need to hear. It is everything you need to know. Seven. So he begins with forgive them and he ends with it is finished. And all the way in between, God is going to share with you and with me his heart for you. For whenever you wonder what does God want or what does God believe about me or about him, we will find it in these seven. For these are the seven things Jesus said while on the cross. The cross. It was the most brutal form of execution the Romans could devise. It was so brutal, so torturous, and inhumane that it was against the law for a Roman citizen to be executed on a cross. You remember the moment when the Apostle Paul is arrested and imprisoned in Philippi. They beat him, they torture him, and they imprison him. And they were, when they learned that he was a Roman citizen, those who had been torturing him became just a wee bit nervous, because that is not how you treated a Roman citizen. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst. It was the Romans' way of saying, cross us and we will make you pay. This is why crucifixions always took place in the center of a town or at the crossroads of a town. That way, no matter who passed by, they would see what crossing Rome would cost you. And the Romans, to make it just as barbaric as possible, would leave you there after you were dead so your corpse would rot off of the cross. It was a horrible way to be executed. 
and the enemies of Jesus devised a way for him to experience this. We're told by Mark, the gospel writer, that it was not at the end of Jesus' ministry immediately before he was executed, but it was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus began to ruffle the religious feathers of the day, the religious leaders grouped up with the political leaders and began to find a way to secretly trap Jesus, arrest Jesus, and execute Jesus. You say, why secretly? The people love Jesus. And they knew if they were to arrest him in a public setting, there would be a riot. And so time after time, they looked for an opportunity to trap and condemn Jesus. But none appears until the night before Jesus dies, a man named Judas, one of Jesus' best friends, closest followers, for 30 pieces of silver, tells the leaders he's by himself. It's night. He's on the Mount of Olives. You can get him. No one will know what's happening until it's too late. So guards come. They arrest Jesus. Jesus' friends flee. And they bring him. And by the time Jesus' friends knew what was going on, Jesus was condemned to die on a cross. And so Jesus is paraded back and forth between the religious and the political leaders of the day. Both were eager to finish him and have him executed, but neither wanted to be the one to condemn this man to death. Finally, the kangaroo court ends. Jesus is convicted, and he is now handed over to the soldiers. Professional killers who were good at their craft of torture. And thus began the painful leading up to the cross. They blindfolded Jesus, and then they would hit him and mock him by saying, Oh, prophet, which one of us just struck you? They would take handfuls of his beard and yank them from his face. They took a crown of thorns, branches, and they would shove it down on his head so that it cut into his skin, causing blood to flow freely. And they beat him with what is called a cat of nine tails. A cat of nine tails is a Roman whip with nine fringes on it. And on the ends of each fringe, they would tie a piece of glass or a piece of stone so that when the soldier would crack the whip, it would wrap around the body of its victim and dig into the flesh. And when the soldier would snap it back, it would rip flesh from your body. It was said that 40 lashes could kill a man. This is why the Romans meticulously counted and quit at 39, so if they miscounted, they would not go over the 40 limits. They put upon Jesus' back the cross beam of his cross. Now, a lot of times when we read about this, we'll see a picture of Jesus carrying his cross, and you've got the cross beam and the long beam. That's not how it worked. The long beam would be at the place of execution, but you would carry the cross beam. And so Jesus, tired, from the torture, anxious, overwhelmed, and from blood loss, carrying his cross to his place of execution, collapse under the weight of the cross. A man from the crowd is pulled out to carry it the rest of the way. When they get to the place of execution, they lay him down, stretch out his arms, and they take railroad-sized spikes, and they drill them between the wrists right here between the two bones of the forearm to hold it up. You see pictures of it here, but if it was in the palm, it would just come out. But here it latches on. And then they took another one, they crossed his feet, and they put a spike between his feet. And they lifted him up. And as it went up, the cross would slam down into place. It would jar. And in that slamming, 
his collarbone would pop out a joint to begin to crush his windpipe. I'm not trying to be graphic, but you need to understand when we talk about the crucifixion, it is not a picture of just two beams. There was a process to completely destroy the person on whom it hung. And for the next number of hours, in many cases days, to get any sort of air, the person would have to press against the spike in their feet, lift up, take a gasp of air, and then slump back down in agony, his raw back rubbing against the rough wood. It would take days. And it's on this cross that Jesus sees the soldiers who are killing him. He hears the mocking voices of the religious leaders who had planned this whole farce. He even sees his followers who are at a distance or some who never even came back. He is utterly alone in this moment and in agonizing pain, blood streaking his face, dripping from his hands, pooling at his feet. And then he speaks. Now here's my question. If you were on the cross in this moment, what would be your response to what you had just endured? Now, for most of us, I think we'd have a few common responses. The first one would simply be, we'd say, go ahead and put this up. It's just not fair. Don't you know what I'm doing for you? God, this is not fair. I've done everything right. I've treated everyone well. I have never said a bad word about anyone. Not only have they lied about me, they are abusing me. It's not fair. Or would your comment have not been, it's unfair, but would you have said, God, please give me strength? Would you have prayed for the power of God to flow through you so you could endure what you've been called to endure? After all, God, I am obeying you to the fullest. This is why I am here. Help me. Give me strength to get through it. Or would you have the response that I think I probably would? It's not, it's unfair. It's not, give me strength. But based on all the torture and the brutality, I would have had enough and I would have been tempted to pray, Father, get them. Not get them, but get them. This is the southern version of, it's that bad. It's not fair. It's not okay. Will you send 10,000 angels, show your justice for what is being done, and obliterate your enemies? But what does Jesus say? It's this moment where he gets to talk to his father. It's this very intimate, personal moment when he sees and hears all this, has the options of what to say. And the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is forgive them. Daddy, here's what I'm asking. The one thing I'm begging you to do is do not hold this against them. They don't get it. They don't get what they're doing. Will you I'm asking you, for me, will you just forgive them? The first thing Jesus says is forgive them. Write this down. Forgiveness is where the conversation begins. The conversation does not begin with God giving you a list of all the things you've done wrong. The conversation does not begin with you fixing yourself. The conversation does not begin even with you confessing or repenting. The conversation began on a cross where God declared, I will forgive all who will receive that forgiveness. The conversation begins with forgiveness. And when I think about this, sometimes we hear these words and it doesn't capture our our imagination, forgive them, because we've heard them so often. 
Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Friend, when you don't have a clue just how bad things are, Jesus' first word to you and over you is forgiveness. When you do get the horror of what you've done, His first word over you and to you is, I forgive you. It begins with forgiveness. But what does that word mean? It's like those other big junk drawer church terms like holiness or sanctification or justification or propitiation and all the Asians. What does this one mean? I don't want you to miss the depth of forgiveness because when Jesus forgives, it is more than a word. It is a state of being that changes everything else. I want to give you four things very quickly. Four things. Jesus' forgiveness means, number one, Jesus' forgiveness is instant. He forgives you instantly. He doesn't say, I need to hear a little groveling first. He doesn't put you in cosmic time out and say, think about what you've done. He doesn't put you on the unholy, never-ending call where you're waiting to talk to someone else on the other side of the phone. This week, I was on the phone for over an hour, and I was listening to the same 30-second musical tune repeat over and over and over. It was Groundhog's Day, and it was bad. But he, some of you got that one, don't you? But he doesn't do that, does he? When you ask for forgiveness, you're forgiven instantly. There's no delay, no wait. In fact, one of the Christian myths that we have got to put to death today is this idea that God wants you to feel guilty, that it makes you somehow a better person to carry around guilt. Friends, that is not biblical. That is not in any way the truth of the gospel. Being guilty and carrying guilt that Christ has already paid for does not make you a better person. It makes you a miserable person, not only personally, but to be around The myth is wrong. In fact, someone will say, well, how long does a Christ follower need to feel guilty about something? Let me answer that with a question. How long does it take for you to ask the Father for forgiveness? That's how long you should feel guilty. Because it's instant. Second thing. Jesus' forgiveness is complete. He forgives you instantly. He, can, he forgives you completely. What does that mean? All right. What sins that you committed did Jesus take to the cross? Answer, all of them. Even the ones that you have yet to commit next week, next month, next decade. Christ saw every one of them. Imagine this. Some of your sins are in front of you, but all of your sins were in front of of Jesus on the cross, and yet He paid for them all. There is no sin you have committed that is not right now forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have been instantly and completely forgiven. Are there consequences? Of course, but never confuse the consequence with forgiveness. Jesus does not dangle it out like a carrot. He gives it instantly and completely. It is this Picture of the waterfall that you are under, that whenever sin, whatever you've done, it is washed over. It is washed over. You are cleansed completely and perfectly, instantly and completely. And here's the reality. Jesus nailed himself to a cross. So friend, you don't have to keep nailing yourself to the cross. He did it for you. And if Jesus forgave and forgot all of your sins, why don't you? He forgives fully. 
instantly, completely. And number three, Jesus forgives repeatedly. This is the one I need. I need. Show of hands. How many of you have ever done anything that you were even slightly embarrassed or disappointed by? Anyone ever do something wrong? If your hand's not up, just ask the person next to you. How many of you, let's do this again, this is all skate. How many of you have done something wrong and then you did the same thing after you repented of it? How many of you feel like you just need to keep those hands raised all the time because it's every five minutes? You're doing something. The gift and the promise of Jesus' forgiveness is that he does not have a cap on how much he will forgive. Now, does this mean that we should seek out sin? Of course not. Does this mean we should be okay with the sin in our lives? Of course not. What it does mean is that you cannot out-sin the grace of Jesus Christ. He has forgiven you instantly, completely, and repeatedly, friend. And number four, He forgives you freely. Now understand, it's free to you, but it costs God His very Son. Just because you get it for free doesn't mean it is free. There was a price paid But God paid it freely. Which means you can't earn it. You can't fix yourself and make yourself better. You can't undo what you did. You can simply receive the grace of Jesus Christ. It's free. How do you receive this gift? Scripture is very clear. We confess our sins. Confession is not telling God all the bad things you did so He'll know. He already knows. Confession is is simply agreeing with God about the sin you have. Saying, I know what I've done. We confess that we are sinners, and we then ask for His forgiveness. We claim Him, say, He is my Savior. He is the one who gets me off the cross because Christ got on the cross. And He becomes my Lord, meaning He directs what I do from now on. When you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, you will be saved. And Acts chapter 2 verse 38 tells us when people said, what must we do? Peter says, repent means stop going that way and be baptized, meaning come join Jesus in the water and your sins are forgiven. It's freely given. And there's nothing you and I can do for it. We simply receive it. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? It's one of the favorites. You know how the story goes. There's a boy who's more interested in his daddy's stuff than having a relationship with his dad. So he says, Dad, give me my stuff. I don't care about you. The father gives him his inheritance. The son squanders it with wild and debauched living until all he has left is a job with pigs in a pen. Now that doesn't mean much to us, but to a Hebrew, that is worse than death. For you and me, being close to a pig, bacon, yeah. To them, it's separation from the people of God because pigs were unclean. You didn't get near him. And so he finds himself in this pig pen and he thinks to himself, he comes to his senses and realizes, my daddy's servants have it better than me. So he hatches a plan, doesn't he? I will go to my father. I have sinned against you and I've sinned against God. May I come home and just be one of your servants. And he goes home. And then the next moment occurs, the father sees the Son, and runs to Him. Now, this is an incredible moment for two reasons. Number one, the Father runs to the Son. Why? Because the Father never stopped watching for the Son's return. Your daddy has never given up watching for you to come home. 
And the second thing that's shocking is he runs. You say, how's that shocking? Again, this is hilarious if you understand Jewish culture. In Jesus' day, grown men, all men, wore long robes, which meant you didn't run anywhere. If you wanted to run, you'd have to gather it up at the base and tuck it into your belt, which meant you left very little for the imagination. We'll leave it at that. What does the father do? He runs to his son. He gathers his robe. He runs to him. And as Jesus, we are told on the cross, died for you, open shame, meaning naked, before the world, the father is willing to shame himself so that he can be reunited with his son. His son begins his spiel. Dad, I have sinned against you and God. Let me come back, be a servant. And what does the father say to the son? Nothing. He ignores him, and he says to the servants, bring the robe, bring the ring, put sandals on my boy's feet. We're going to have a party, slaughter the fattened calf, because my son who was lost is now found. He who was dead is now alive. He is forgiven. And this is your Father in heaven, church, who on the cross through Jesus Christ died instantly, completely, repeatedly, freely forgiving you. And so now we come to this moment like those in the crowd. We witness him on the cross. We hear the jeers. We see the soldiers. We see the thieves. And we listen closely. And to his father, we hear him say, Father, forgive them. They don't get it. If you are in Christ, you are forgiven. Put the weight down. When Jesus went into the tomb, he took your sin. When he came out of the tomb, he left your sin there. Don't go grave robbing. Leave what he has buried. You are forgiven.